Emma Rothman was 12 years old when she had a heart transplant. Let that sink in for a moment. She was 12. My friends in the transplant community were my parents' age or older. Mm. And so when we think about a transplant recipient, right, we're thinking about this like adult caricature who, you know, has lived and has a lot more wisdom than a 12-year-old. Yeah, it's a lot. And it's easy to understand why Emma is still working to process everything that's happened in her life to this point. Welcome to the Q's Conversation. I'm Chris Velarde, Communications Director in the Office of Alumni Engagement. Glad to have you listening. Our guest on this episode is Emma Rothman, a 2021 Syracuse University graduate and the author of Things My Therapist Doesn't Want Me to Say, 10 Years Post-Heart Transplant. Her story and her perspective is really something. Obviously, there is so much to Emma's story, and we covered a lot of it in this conversation, beginning with something she's only recently learned to embrace. If we don't start with the heart transplant, we're kind of burying the lead. You know, what's interesting, Chris, is until the last year or so when I started writing this book, I would have never been able to sit here and not only admit that that is the lead story, but feel comfortable, right, that that is my story. And I can't leave that part of me at home, which is what I tried to do when I was a freshman at Syracuse University. I thought this was going to be a fresh start and all the medical, you know, things that I was dealing with, you know, as a 12 year old and for the last decade, you know, I could leave at home. Um, and when I had my heart transplant when I was 12, I had never heard of organ and tissue donation until after my transplant surgery. Um, I woke up in a room surrounded by doctors and people I had never seen before in a hospital I had never been before. Um, and I had never even had surgery before, right? Um, and then I wake up from the surgery and from that day on, I'm kind of trying to outrun <laughs> my transplant and, and try to kind of distance myself from it. And so writing this book, um, Things My Therapist Doesn't Want Me to Say, 10 Years Post Heart Transplant, right, is me reclaiming that this is my story and that, you know, this is the lead and I'm okay with that now. Was there one thing or was it a series of things that made you come to this acceptance and willingness to, to embrace that part of your story? That's a great question. I think a couple of things. Um, my senior year at Syracuse um, was also my 10 year heart transplant anniversary. So a lot of things were kind of coming to an end, um, whether it was serendipitous or not. <laughs> um, but I, I was kind of sitting there with a lot of anxiety, right? Because I never talked about my transplant at home with my family. Um, we didn't know how to, and all of us are at such different, and still, if I'm being completely honest, are at such different parts of our healing journey and what we're comfortable talking about. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in order to look forward, we need to look back, right? And so in order to be comfortable and ready for the next 10 years, I really felt like I needed to come to terms with my history and with my story. And then graduating college <laughs> kind of put a you know fast track on that because I didn't want to become a real person, you know, a graduate, right? And not feel like I had this closure that I was deeply yearning for um, before I graduated. Hmm. I mean, that obviously is a monumental time for 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 so many people, right? You're closing one chapter, yeah. you're you're opening a chapter that that really hasn't been written and you don't know what's going to be in it. And exactly to, to be carrying a, around the weight of, of something so 
enormous must have absolutely added to to what you were feeling at that time i wish i could say it's a transplant thing but unfortunately graduation for everybody yeah. is probably one of the most anxiety inducing uh <laughs> moments right because there's no class that's going to prepare you for what to do you know march 18th when you're not going that you're not going to class anymore right you've walked across the stage you have your diploma you're getting kicked out of your house your roommates <laughs> are scrambling and now you're like you know sitting on the front of your lawn like now what yeah right and the idea of that was even more terrifying to me because i never like imagined myself even going to college right mm -hmm. and when you grow up you know, medically fragile and you spend so much time in a hospital, your future looks a lot more like months and years and not like decades, right? Because if you're always waiting for the next medical trauma or the next medical thing to happen, right? And after I had my transplant, I had my brain surgery. Um, and so at that point in my life, I really couldn't see myself that far into the future. So when I graduated and I looked around, I was like, oh my God, this happened. Wow. Like I, I did this for myself. And so, um, at that point I hadn't really planned past those four years, right? Because I really didn't think that somebody like me could get through those four years. Um, so writing this book, I think helped me process that this is actually happening and I'm actually going to be leaving, you know, the three one five. So it was definitely a bunch of factors really kind of guide that impacted that decision to start writing. Journal and, and therapeutic sense and that's so but writing is something that, that you had been doing, room, right? That's something uh, that was, you had you been know, doing kind of school. for yourself. Yeah. You know, um talk a little a really about your journey, about the, the your journey with journaling of uh, transplant and, and how, because how that, that you hear you a transplant things. recipient talk about the fact that the I got this new heart, I got this new whatever consistent things, and you know, in my life. It changed my life and I have a new perspective. Fragile my environments have been really fragile journey. You were 12. You hadn't had a life had to change yet in a lot of ways. Do, and right? so, exactly. right? You didn't have that moment of understanding um, and clarity that, that came from this and transplant. Most of my that's life, something that you kind of grew with. And that's just really hard to wrap my head around. I can only imagine how you have been able to wrap your head around it over time. I still am, so don't worry. Around everything as as we grow, but um, but I you know some things are bigger than others. The one of my favorite lines you know in my book is you know when a normal person has like a midlife crisis, they buy themselves a new car, or they go on vacation, or you know they like go on a retreat, and you know and I, and I said like when I'm twelve, my midlife crisis was like an ice cream whenever I wanted. <laughs> you know, like that was my that was my my world then, and that was you know. A, the bubble that I wrap myself around in is I didn't think that I was in a midlife crisis right until I started to really organize my life like life before my transplant and life after and the hardest part for me is that I still clearly remember my life before it was turned upside down and so I didn't grow up sick my family didn't grow up sick no one in my family has ever had hypertrophic ventricular tongue twister mm -hmm. hypertrophic ventricular cardiomyopathy uh, which is the enlargement of the heart muscle and that's what um got my heart really sick and what you know eventually made it fail 
So nobody around me, there was nobody I could look up to, right? That was in my shoes. And so I didn't think any, I didn't think it was not normal until I got to college until, you know, enough time had passed and I could look back and say, wow, I've really been through a lot. (laughs) Um, And honestly, when I first started writing this book, I was like, I don't have enough to write about. And I had a really great friend of mine say like, Emma, are you crazy? (laughs) She's like, I don't think you want anything else to write about at this point. And I was like, yeah, you might be right. (laughs) And and with the book, when, you know, you, you had gone from, I'm not talking about this. This is not, I don't want this to be my identity. I don't want this to be the thing, the lead story to I'm writing a book and I want to share this story with everyone who will read this book, everyone who, you know, as many people as possible. What, what caused that dramatic flip? That's a great question. I was definitely dragging my feet, you know, in the mud to get to this, you know, point of, I would say, comfortability within my story. But the underlying current through all of this was I wanted to write this book so I would never have to answer another question about my past ever again. You know, I could say, you want to know about that? (laughs) Read page, you know, 15. Um, Because I just got so sick and tired of when I walked into a room, I was so insecure with who I was that if people were seeing me as Emma or Emma, you know, the girl with the heart transplant or the sick girl or the sick friend or the sick family member or, you know, all the horrible things that your brain concocts about, you know, your biggest insecurities. Um, And so when I wrote this, I wanted it to be like, this is who I am. It's on the table, take it or leave it kind of thing. Mm. Um, And to get to that point was a lot of therapy sessions, a lot of crying and a lot of you know, internal work to get to that point of keeping my promise in my author's note that this is as unfiltered and vulnerable as it gets. And I had to write that in my author's note because Chris, I'll tell you, you know, when I first started writing, it was objective and I was like synthesizing articles because I couldn't handle reliving these memories Mm. and I didn't want to. Right. And I thought that I could, you know, write a memoir about myself without talking really about my story because I didn't know it. Um, and, and, so, and so you learned it as you wrote. I mean, did it, it, you were able to, to access some of this, this information, these stories, these feelings that in many ways you had just put in a box and, and said, I'm not opening that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so to, I, I think to help kind of illustrate this, when I got sick, um, my dad and I were at my pediatrician's office in New Jersey. And luckily my pediatrician is in a hospital. And I thought I had mono because I'd been in and out of school for a couple of weeks. And a lot of the symptoms with heart failure just kind of overlap with mono. And so I was experiencing severe fatigue. I had like very lethargic, um, kind of feverish. And so when I went to get this blood test at my pediatrician's office, I went into end stage cardiac arrest and pretty much woke up six days later in a new hospital with a new heart, um, with a new life. In my, in my hospital room, literally. Um, and so from that moment on, it really was, okay, we need to keep Emma alive because we are so afraid that something this catastrophic is gonna happen again. And I don't blame my parents and I don't blame my family. Like that is su- survival, yeah. right? At that point. And so Especially because for of their that, daughter, I mean, they're think- this is their little girl. Yeah. And I, when I put myself in their shoes, I can't because I get like, it's, then I'm not, you know, working on my own recovery when I'm 
focused on theirs and like healing. But from that moment on, right, like we were just so afraid that we never felt like we could sit down and reflect because we were just trying to prepare for the next thing. Mm. And so when I started writing this, you know, I've had to sit down with my parents and say, like, we need to talk about this. Um, And so we had to have these conversations that, you know, I had been trying to avoid for the last 10 years. And at some point I was like, in order to move on, in order to move forward, like I need to address these things. And so that's really kind of like the catalyst and kind of where this book took off was needing to address my past yeah, with my family. And, and understanding the power in that and, and ultimately as difficult as I'm sure it is, the the benefit of that long term um and and then sharing that story and also through your nonprofit you want that to to expand to other people as well because look you know we all know in all circumstances we're not alone there are other people probably dealing with similar types of things so how did you decide you know what i i want to help others as well. I've got to help myself. I'm going to help the family as I help myself, but I want to, I want to spread this, this help to others. Um, our family nonprofit Hearts for Emma started about a year after I had my transplant. And really the inception was to give back to our community that like truly remarkably, you know, took care of us when our world, like, a you know, turned upside down and whether that looked like driving my sister back and forth from New Jersey to the city for the hospital, whether that looked like bringing me home cooked meals, bringing my parents a change of clothes, bringing toys, games, like, um, you know, posters to cover my hospital walls. So my room felt, you know, familiar and less like sterile. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, like people didn't even hesitate. And so once, you know, I was healthy enough where I wasn't going back to the hospital once a week. Um, and then it became every other week and then a couple of times a month. And, you know, as you get more stable um, and things start to quiet down, you can take a minute and look, look around you. And when we started to look around at the hospital and, and talk to staff, we realized that the support that I received is quite unique and not the norm. Um, and there's a really big discrepancy between, you know, healthcare needs and what people have and the support that they need. And so, Hearts for Emma provides bedside support to families affected by heart transplantation and heart disease. And what that looks like is um, meal gift cards. It looks like a toiletry closet. It looks like paying, you know, for transportation for parents to get to the hospital or to see their kid. Um, it looks like donating, you know, craft supplies for the siblings club so that when siblings visit their loved one, they're not just sitting in the room, you know, toying with their thoughts, right? They're with a social worker doing crafts in the, you know, kids club. And that was a way for us to channel our, I want to say like anxiety and fear in the hospital and make it a breath easier, you know, for everybody else there. And in doing that, I think that made us feel more comfortable while we were there. It's really been huge for my mom to be able to connect with other moms and other transplant families as well and kind of guide them through, you know, what she went through 10 years ago. And I would say now with social media, the entire landscape of support is so different because it's so much easier, right? To find people that you need to connect to and you need to relate to. Whereas 10 years ago, TikTok wasn't a thing. Discord wasn't really around, right? Instagram had just kind of started. 
right? And I wasn't on Facebook. And so that was right at the time, the biggest social media platform, I would say. My parents were not like, go online and meet people. Right. Um, so Hearts for Emma kind of bridged that gap for us and still does. Yeah, which is which is a, a really powerful uh, powerful thing to be able to do and, and and to talk about. Now, the book is is just out, right? Yes. And um, it it hasn't been long, but what's what's happened since? Have you heard from people? Have you? Do you feel any different now that that it's out in the world? A lot different. A lot different. I'm. Uh... I've never been more alive. <laughs> Writing a book is stressful. There's a reason only like 3% of people actually finish it. Um, and I finished this in like 15 months. And, and, so, and let me just interrupt you to say, writing a book is one thing. Writing a book about a personal story as, <laughs> as powerful and uh, you know dramatic as yours is, is probably you know a different thing like you know you can write a children's book and it's you know a fun holiday story or something and then you can write the book that you wrote so I think you know just to be fair <laughs> thank you I, that out there. I appreciate that yeah I appreciate that because I'll still downplay it in my head and I have to catch myself and say Emma I know you like you actually you did this be proud yeah. of yourself because I'll be like oh like you know I just shared my story I'm like Emma put yourself this time last year how are you feeling and then talk to yourself the way you're talking to yourself right now let's let's reframe that one yeah um you know, I so my hardcover is not out yet, and will be out um, in a couple of months after the new year. And I had the chance to write a bonus chapter, an epilogue uh, for my hardcover. And sitting down, you know, a year after I started writing this, and having you know the being back in that like creative space of how are you feeling a year later, right, um, was really powerful. And I don't want to give it all away, but just the mm -hmm. uh, the space, right? Kind of what we were talking about to be yourself now that all of myself is out there yeah. has been an unintended, you know, success, right? Like I didn't really think that was going to happen until I saw my book listed on Amazon and I was like, holy crap, like <laughs> I can't hide anymore. Like I literally cannot hide anymore. Yeah. And so that's been just a huge weight off my shoulders that I didn't even know I was carrying for the last 10 years of not trying to hide who I am anymore, depending on like who I'm with and worrying about making them feel uncomfortable because of what I've been through. And, you know, my like experience is not, I don't often walk into a room and relate to people about my childhood, which is fine. And I'm, I've grown to be okay with that. And I've grown to not need that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, for other people who read my book, whether, you know, they're going through a transplant or anything, you know, not even just like a medical experience just dealing with the messiness of experiencing college for anyone is chaotic and so i'm just hoping that when they read my book they'll feel you know validated that whatever their experience is whether it's like the movies or not is fine and, and that's that's it there's nothing else really to defend or validate at that point it's chaotic to begin with. And then when you throw in extenuating circumstances, it becomes even more chaotic. And, you know, certainly for, for everyone over the last two years, yeah, there have absolutely. been extenuating circumstances, which have made kind of the norm, the college, you know, movie experience not look quite the same. And, and I know part of, of your message is, is the importance of getting to a place where you can talk about it. 
right? With with a therapist, with with people. Um, is that something you're hoping that that people will take away from Absolutely. from your story and from your book? Yeah, thank you, thank you for asking that. Um, you know, when I was in college, I made the decision that my friends couldn't handle what I had to say before I even you know tried talking to them about it, and that has been something that countless people, even my friends, have like brought up to me. You know, that point in the book um, about you know how common that is, and we're so afraid of what the people closest to us are going to think about us. And so I isolated myself. And in college, that's really when you need support, I would argue, the most. Hmm. At that stage in your life, it's such a transitional stage, any time in your 20s, really. And so by deciding that my friends couldn't handle, you know, what I had to say, I'm hoping other people won't make, not that mistake, but won't make that decision without really thinking about the intention of not telling them. And mine was because I was afraid, not because I didn't think that they didn't care, not because I didn't think they could handle it, but I didn't want to burden them with what I had to say. And so I'm hoping that, you know, for students to hear this and then understand that people are in your life for a reason that they choose to be in your life. And no matter what you say, they're still going to choose to be there for you if they love you. And all of my friends who I started college with are still my friends now. And They've obviously read my book and they're, they're still there. So um, yeah, that's really, really important to me. Yeah, give, give them that chance to, um, to hear what you have to say. And, you know, and yeah, if, if, if they love you, if they're part of your life, if they're, you know, if they're meant to be there, they'll, they'll still be there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and college is a great kind of environment to really test that out. I, I would say. No, no doubt about it. Um, and, and so along those lines, what brought you to this particular college? What brought you to Syracuse? You know, what's funny is I'm a bit of a risk taker and I applied ED to Syracuse only. Wow. All yeah. the eggs in one basket. I get that response a lot. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even have any other applications filled out. Like if I didn't get into Syracuse, I wasn't, I was going to go to a community college and then reapply. Um, my sister went to Syracuse, so I think that definitely impacted me a little bit, Yeah. but, um, I really wanted to be in Maxwell. Um, and then I, I got in, I had an incredible, you know, experience with the Maxwell faculty. Um, but I realized that I was really good at it, but I didn't love it. Hmm. And it just so happened that Falk started their food studies department in 2016. And I was just so lucky that Dr. Weissman, um, Evan um, became my advisor and I feel very blessed to have worked with him, you know, before he passed. And so I transitioned from Maxwell to Falk um, and I graduated with a food studies degree. It's interesting. One of the, the things I think about Syracuse is, you know, it, it is a college is a journey, right? And people come and they think they know what they want to do. And then <laughs> yeah. they start doing their I'm the poster you know, child for that. Yeah, and, and, but you're not alone in that. Um, right, but Syracuse right. is the kind of place where, okay, maybe that that wasn't the perfect fit, but you have an opportunity to try so many other things at a university like Syracuse, which is one of the best. I don't think, now that you mentioned, I think I changed my major like three times. I tried to minor in three different things. I don't think I solidified food studies until the very last moment when every single advisor and Falk was like, hey, Emma, we're concerned. <laughs> about graduation and staying on track please declare a major 
Um, and I was really dragging my feet in that too, right? Because that was like, seemed like a final decision. And, you know, as a perfectionist and also somebody recovering from all this, you know, shit, I was like, I can't mess this up. What if I never get to, you know, do this again? Or what if you know, I never get to go back to school again? Like this has to be perfect. And so all that pressure plus, you know, feeling like I'm having to live vicariously through my donor family and succeed for them as well was like a big mental like catastrophe. So I'm really thankful for so many amazing advisors at Syracuse who sat me down and was like, Emma, I can promise you that whatever you decide, you may not even use once you leave this campus. <laughs> like just pick something and you can always work from that, but you need to pick something. Yeah. And so that is how luckily I found an amazing department like food studies. And you haven't been out long, but now that you are part of the the Syracuse alumni family and, you know, and, and you said you had you got a sister who is also part of that family. But what what does that mean to you? And what what do you see as kind of the lifelong connection to to Syracuse? Sitting with you here today, Chris, I mean, that is a perfect example of, you know, the alumni network reaching far and wide and really utilizing, you know, that network. Um, I'm someone who feels bad asking for help because I think I should be able to do everything on my own. Um, and so I, right. So I went on LinkedIn and I just started messaging other alumni who have are in the publishing space who are from Newhouse as well and had background in um, PR and just writing in general, because I needed to build a new foundation for myself now that I'm no longer on campus. And so I've never been in a space where someone either has not gone to Syracuse himself or doesn't know somebody. And I mean, all over the world, like I'm talking Australia, like Syracuse is everywhere. And we're, we're happy about that. Um, and, and when you have reached out, um, have you, have you been met with mostly positive responses? <laughs> I would say only positive responses. Everybody wants to know like what your freshman dorm was. Everyone's curious, like where you lived on campus. Um, and so part of that, you know, generosity, I think is also myself trying to emulate, you know, the community values that were like shared with me to other people as well. So, you know, incoming, you know, graduates, um, I like to say I'm on my gap plus plus here because <laughs> I still don't feel like an alumni yet. Um, but I'm waiting for the day when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm an alumni. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to, you know, do the same thing that was done for me and, and kind of emulate that generosity as well. We started um, our conversation by you saying, you know, you you didn't do a lot of future looking. That was always a difficult thing. Are you able to do that now? Some days. Some days, if I'm being completely honest, um, I'd like to say that, you know, I, I am no longer anxious or depressed or, you know, trying to organize all these thoughts into like how I was feeling 10 years ago. Um, but the truth is that even though I've done all this work and I've, you know, done all this reflecting and finished this project, I'm still me, <laughs> um, which is disappointing some days, right? Um, but on other days, it feels a huge relief that I can still be me and not worry about holding all that in. And so I'm not sure what the future holds for me right now. Um, I'm, a lot of things are in flux right now, which is the beauty of being yourself. And also what's so terrifying is because I'm really, you know, leaning on myself right now, the most that I have in my whole life. Um, 
but the best part about that is that I don't feel like I'm holding any of that back anymore. Um, so my structure feels the most sound it's ever been, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed. If you're interested in reading Emma's book, Things My Therapist Doesn't Want Me to Say, 10 Years Post-Heart Transplant, you can find a link in the description of this episode. There's also a link to her nonprofit, Hearts for Emma, and the Donate Life Registry. Emma is a living example of the life-saving importance of organ donation. Thank you for listening to the Cuse Conversation podcast from Syracuse University. I'm Chris Villardi. Until next time, go on.